can I encourage you to please open up your Bibles at 1 Samuel chapter 5. You're going to need them tonight. Um, and just to kind of kind of put your mind in this, um, sometimes whenever we hear the word ark, we think of Noah and the big boat. Uh, but the ark that we're looking at tonight, it's a completely different type of ark. Um, whenever you hear ark mentioned tonight, it's a piece of furniture that was in the tabernacle and then in the temple. Um, if you read Exodus chapter 37, you'll see the details of it. So it was a, a wooden box. It was overlaid with gold on the outside and the inside. It had a, a gold molding on it. It had cherubim on either side. It had four golden rings that poles could be put through so that the ark could be carried. And, and the ark was kept in the most holy place in the tabernacle and then the most holy place in the temple. And over time, the ark had become the symbol of God's presence. So if you remember last week, whenever Andy was preaching, and the Israelites, they're losing the battle. They're losing against the Philistines. And so what do they do? Well, they kind of take the ark out, almost like a lucky charm. Ah, oh, we've got the ark now. God's with us. God's present. And so they, they started to look like at it like, like a lucky charm. They started to look at it almost like an idol, which was a wrong thing. So, so the ark, that's what we're talking about tonight whenever we look at that in this passage. But let's pray as we come to look at this part of the Bible together. Almighty God, we thank you so much that all of the Bible, including this part, has been given to us for our instruction and for our edification. And Lord, tonight we pray that as we look at this part of the Bible, which is a little bit difficult and has some difficult things in it, we ask that you would speak to us and teach us and help us to embrace and to understand and to receive your word with gladness and joy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In 2018, the two best boxers in the world were Tyson Fury and Deontay Wilder. They were heavyweight boxers. Their fists were made of titanium. Their jaws were made of steel. They were two big brutes of men. And it was set up in 2018 for Deontay Wilder to fight Tyson Fury. This was gonna be a payday for both of them. It was gonna sell millions and millions and millions of pay-per-view uh, things on Sky. And so the two men went for it. And I mean they went for it. Landing punches here, landing punches there. 12 grueling rounds of boxing. And in the 12th round, with about one minute to go, Deontay Wilder landed Tyson Fury with a left and a right. And Tyson Fury hit the deck. The referee started to count him out. And Tyson Fury on the ground, he just looked like he was lifeless. And Deontay Wilder on the other hand, well, he did this kind of victory dance. He looked at him. And genuinely, he went like this. This little shake of the, of the shoulders. He was delighted. He'd won. The commentators were saying what a resounding victory it was. The Deontay Wilder fans were going crazy. The Tyson Fury fans were really sad. It looked like Deontay Wilder was the winner. And it looked like Tyson Fury was defeated. And that's kind of like what we've got at the start of 1 Samuel chapter 5. The Philistines had beaten the Israelites. And it's more than that, it's that the Philistine God had beaten the Israelite God. You see, in the ancient world, whenever people went to war against each other, they went in the name of their God. In a sense, they were representing their God. They were fighting with their God backing them. And so the Philistines, they'd, they'd routed the Israelites. They'd captured the ark 
They'd even got the Israelites' secret weapon, and they were doing the little victory dance. They were so, so smug. But in the fight between Fury and Deontay Wilder, when the referee got to number eight, Tyson Fury got up, and everyone was amazed. Tyson Fury looked defeated, but he wasn't. And that's exactly what we're going to see tonight in 1 Samuel chapter 6 and 7. God looked defeated momentarily, but he was certainly not defeated by the, by the Philistines' God, and he certainly wasn't defeated by the Philistines. Let's pick it up and have a look at what happened. So basically, the, 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 the ark is captured, and the first thing we're going to see in chapter 6 is that God knocks Dagon, the Philistine god, down. We're with the boxing motif, okay? So the start of chapter 6, God knocks Dagon down. So the ark is taken to Ashdod, and if you have a look at what happens, you'll see it in verse 1. After the Philistines had captured the ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer, that's where the battle was, to Ashdod. They carried the ark into Dagon's temple and set it beside Dagon. Now notice there what they do. They set the ark beside Dagon. That's interesting, isn't it? They don't destroy it. They don't burn it. They don't chop it up into bits. They set it in Dagon's temple beside him. You see, the Philistines, they weren't monotheists. They didn't just believe in one God. They believed that there were lots of gods. And they believed that their God, Dagon, was the daddy God. And I mean literally the daddy God. If you look at the, 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 uh, the, the deity Dagon in history, you'll see that the, the people believed that he was the God of gods. That he was the father of many gods, including Baal. They believed that Dagon was the supreme God. And so the Philistines, when they beat the Israelites, they take the Ark of the Covenant and they put it beside Dagon. They put it in the temple with Dagon and probably the other gods. And this is like a trophy. Hey, look. Look who Dagon beat. You know in a boxing match and you've got the world champion and he's got the belt and then he gets beaten and the belt gets taken as a trophy and everyone can see the belt in the hand of the, of the winner? Well, that's kind of like this. Hey, look, we defeated the Israelites. Dagon beat their God, and there's the Ark of the Covenant. There's the trophy. We even got the Ark. That's how amazing the victory of Dagon was over the Israelites' God. He puts the Ark beside Dagon. It's interesting, isn't it? They place God beside their idol. They try to do both. Dagon is our main God and, and, and the God of the Israelites, he'll be, he'll be kind of one of our lucky charms. Whenever we're in a battle and we're getting beat, maybe we can call on him. Maybe we can wheel out the Ark of the Covenant. They set the God of Israel, the one true living God, beside their idol. That's called syncretism. That's whenever they try to, to worship all the gods, when they try to hold all the gods as equal. There's an episode of The Simpsons. I don't know if you're Simpsons fans. Um, but there's an episode of The Simpsons whenever Homer is in a lot of trouble. And you hear Homer pray and he says, Jesus, Buddha, Allah, I love you all. Now we would never do that, would we? We would never say, listen, I'm a Christian. I believe in Jesus and I'm also kind of a worshiper of Allah and I also follow the Hindu ways. We would never do that, would we? 
But we would, wouldn't we, have other things we put our trust in and hope in and faith in alongside God. There are things that we put in place of God in our lives. There are things we value more than God in our lives. There are things that we put our trust in more than God. There are things we look to for satisfaction more than God. There are things, and whether or not we like to admit it or not, that are idols in our lives. Things we look to for security and hope and comfort above God. John Calvin says that our hearts are idol factories. That in each of us, there is the ability to produce things that we put alongside God and trust Him at times above Him. And that is what the Philistines have done here. They've put God, the living God, beside their idol. Tonight I wonder, are there idols in your life? Tonight I wonder, are there things that rival God for your affection and for your love and for your joy and for your hope? Are there things that you value infinitely above him tonight? Well, can I encourage you, if that's you, to, to get rid of those things, to give them a place in your life, but not to give them first place, to give them a place in your life, but not to put them above God. Can I encourage you tonight, if there's idols, things that you value more than him, to put them in their right place? Anyway, they put the ark beside Dagon. And the message is very simple. By doing that, they're saying, Dagon is superior. It's like the two boxers. Who's going to be the superior boxer? Well, here, whenever they put the Ark of the Covenant beside Dagon, they're saying, Dagon's superior. Dagon is supreme. Dagon is the very best. But the next day, when they go to the temple, they find something very surprising. Have a look with me at verse 3. So the next day they, they go to the temple, no doubt to offer Dagon his sacrifices, the food that he needs. And what happens, we'll take a look with me at verse 3. When the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. They go in and there's Dagon face down before the ark. If you're wondering what the idol Dagon looked like, it was kind of half man, half fish. So the top half, he had arms and he had a head and he looked like a man. And then bottom half was like the little mermaid, kind of big fish tail. And, and so that's what the, this idol looked like. And so they go in the next day and there's Dagon face down before the ark of the Lord. Do you see what's happened here? Nobody pushed Dagon over. No human moved him. It was the Lord who moved him. The Lord put him in his place. The Lord put him in the position that he should have been in. The Lord put him in this position so that the people might recognize that he is actually the supreme God. You see, this position of lying face down in the Bible, it's a position of worship. You can read it throughout the Old Testament. Every time you find someone falling on their face, they're falling in awe and reverence and worship of God. And in the book of Revelation, we read that. Revelation 7, verse 11, all the angels stood around the throne, the elders and the four living creatures. They fell face down before the throne and worshiped God. 
Revelation 11:16. the 24 elders who were seated before God on their thrones fell face down and worshipped God. To fall face down is to fall down in a place of reverence and submission and humility. It's to recognize that God is God, that he is supreme. And here when they go in, this is the position they find Dagon in. Now here's a question. What should the Philistines do right now? If they've gone into the temple and they have found their God face down before the God of Israel, what should they do? They should do the same, shouldn't they? They should say, listen, if if the Lord has brought our God down and, and he's in a position of worship, maybe we should worship him too. Maybe we should fall face down in reverence and in awe at this mighty God of the Israelites. But they don't do that. Instead, what they do is quite funny. A little bit of humor in this passage. There's not much of it, so let's take it as it comes. Let's take a look at what they do. Well, have a look at the end of verse 3. They took Dagon and put him back in his place. (laughs) That's kind of ironic, isn't it? Here is this God who's apparently defeated the Israelite God. And what have they do? They have to go and lift him up. He's powerless. He can't even get himself off the ground. He's just a worthless idol. And so what do they do? They they go down and they, they pick old Dagon up. They put him back in his place upright so you can see his nice fishtail. It's funny, isn't it? But it's also really sad. It's also really sad because throughout the world, there are many people who are worshipping gods just like Dagon. Gods who have absolutely no power. Gods who are completely powerless. I have a friend called David Eastwood and him and his wife are missionaries in Taiwan. They work with um, the urban poor, with the working class people. Uh, and they have a wonderful ministry of sharing the gospel with people who are very often from, from different uh, religious backgrounds. Uh, and one of the years that they were there, um, there was an earthquake. And the whole of Taiwan, it was shaken. And, and the temples, the, the Buddhist temples and the Hindu temples that were there, they, they collapsed And David said one of the most poignant pictures he saw and one of the most heartbreaking pictures he saw was the devotees of these gods digging through the rubble to find their gods so they could set them back on the shelf. There's something sad about that, isn't there? People who have put their trust in idols who are no gods at all. Anyway, the the Philistines, that's what they do. They They put Dagon back up and they leave. And the next day they go in again, uh, again, probably to give Dagon his sacrifices. And this time things get even worse because this time it's not just that Dagon has fallen over, but God has smashed him, literally. God has smashed him on the floor. Have a look with me at verse four. But the following morning when they rose, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. His head and his hands had been broken off and were lying on the threshold. Only his body remained. His head and his arms had been removed by the Lord. Now what we don't get tonight is that in the ancient world, 
and it's a little bit gory, in the ancient world, very often in war, and they might have taken limbs as a trophy. And so here, this is what God has done. He's broken off the idol's arms and he's broken off the idol's head to show that he is victorious over this idol. Do you see what God is doing? He's showing the people very clearly that he is supreme over Dagon. He's showing the people very, very clearly that he is the God who should be worshipped and followed. That he is the God who should be listened to. That he's the God that the people should tremble before. In Isaiah 42, the Lord says this, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not share my glory with anyone else or the praise due me with idols. Hey, Philistines, I'm making it really clear by what I'm doing to your idol here that I am the supreme God. I'm making it really clear that you should bow before me and tremble. But they don't. I don't know if they stuck Dagon back together. I don't know what they did with Dagon, but they didn't fall down and worship God. But here God's making it clear, isn't he? He's supreme over Dagon. He is the living God, the powerful God, the mighty God. He's not like this idol that has to be picked up by the Philistines when it falls down. Tonight we live in a very multicultural world, and it's good we live in a world in Northern Ireland now which has increasingly become more multicultural. We have people of different faiths and different backgrounds all living together here. And it adds life and it adds vibrancy and it's not a bad thing. But there's something that I think as Christians we, we have to remember. And it's that although we must respect people of other religions and although we must respect their faith, we must not get it into our heads that their gods are like our God. We must not get it into our heads that the gods and the idols they worship are equal to our God. Because they are not. They are not, and this is what this passage is telling us. The gods of other religions, the idols that are worshipped by the Hindus, the gods of other faiths, are not the God. They are not supreme. Our God is. Let me read to you a poem found in Isaiah 40 just to, to make this clear. Listen to these words and just reflect on how our God is different. Isaiah 40 says, Who has held the oceans in his hand? Who has measured off the heavens with his fingers? Who else knows the weight of the earth or has weighed the mountains and hills on a scale? Who is able to advise the Spirit of the Lord? Who knows enough to give him advice or teach him? Has the Lord ever needed anyone's advice? Does he need instruction about what is good? Did someone teach him what is right or show him the path of justice? No, for all the nations of the world are but a drop in the bucket. They are nothing more than dust on the scales. He picks up the whole earth as though it were a grain of sand. The nations of the world are nothing to him. His eyes they count for less than nothing, mere emptiness and froth. And then listen to this in verse 18, and this is important. To whom can you compare God? What image can you find to resemble him? 
Can he be compared to an idol formed in a mold, overlaid with gold and decorated with silver chains? Or if people are too poor for that, that they might at least choose wood that they don't decay and a skilled craftsman to carve an image that won't fall down? And then listen to this. Haven't you heard? Don't you understand? Are you deaf to the words of God? The words he gave before the world began. Are you so ignorant? God sits above the circle of the earth. The people below seem like grasshoppers to him. And it could go on and on and on in this poem. But the whole point is that that there is only one God and he is supreme and he is powerful and he is mighty. And we're not to think of the other gods as being anywhere near his equal. And I know that in our society that is a little bit uncomfortable for us to hear. But this is the truth of the Bible. There is one living God And it is the God who is Father, Son, and Spirit is the God who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead. Anyway, let's get back to the Tyson Fury and Deontay Wilder trilogy. So fight one, you've got the match, it's the 12th round, there's the knockdown. Tyson Fury gets up and he shows very clearly that, that he's not been defeated. And that's what we see at the start of this passage. But then there is the second fight between these two heavyweights. And in the second fight, my goodness, Tyson Fury just pummels poor Deontay Wilder. He pummels him. There is just not a hope for Deontay Wilder in this fight. Round one goes to Fury. Round two goes to Fury. Round three to Fury. Round four Fury. Round five Fury. Round six Fury. Round seven, Fury is absolutely pummeling him. And you know what Deontay Wilder's team do? They throw in the towel. Have you heard that expression? It's a boxing term. They give up. They throw in the towel. Get him out of there. He's getting pounded. We don't want him to be knocked out. They throw in the towel. They give up. Just get him out. Get him out of the ring. And that's kind of what happens next in our passage. Having knocked down Dagon, and the people haven't responded in worship, the people haven't responded by recognizing him As the supreme God, God then moves on and God starts to devastate the people. He starts to devastate the people in the cities where the ark of the Lord is. And you see that at the start of chapter 6. Verse 6, it says, The Lord's hand was heavy on the people of Ashdod and its vicinity. So Ashdod is the first city where the ark is. The Lord's hand was heavy on the people of Ashdod and its vicinity. And then look, he brought devastation on them and afflicted them with tumors. Now, that word tumors, it's been debated what it is, but it's probably hemorrhoids. So every time they go to sit down, it's pretty uncomfortable. And that's the kind of least of it. He afflicted them with tumors. And when the people of Ashdod saw what was happening, they said, the ark of the God of Israel must not stay here with us because his hand is heavy on us and on our God, Dagon. See what they do? Get it out of here. Listen, you brought the ark of the Lord here uh, and now we're having these problems uh, and now we're being devastated. Please, just we, we give up. Just take, take it away. Take the ark out of our city. Get it out of here. We don't want it here anymore. Now there's a kind of irony in this, isn't there? Because look what they say. 
they say that the hand of the Lord is heavy on us. And that's ironic because Dagon's hands had been removed. But do you see what's happening here? God is displaying his supremacy to the people. Now, it's uncomfortable for them. It's not easy for them. They're experiencing his wrath. They're seeing his glory through his judgment. They're seeing his glory and his power through punishment, but they're seeing that God is God. And they're seeing his might, and they're seeing his supremacy. It's really interesting, too, because you see that word heavy? It's the same word in the Hebrew for glory. You see, to glorify God is to give him weight. It's to give him significance. It's a weighty thing. And here God's hand is revealing his glory, his power, his might, his weight, his supremacy over Dagon. Anyway, look at verse 8. So they called together the rulers of the Philistines and asked them, what shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, let the ark of the Lord of Israel be moved to Gath. So they moved the ark of the Lord of the God of Israel. So listen, We'll take it away from your city and we'll move it to Gath. Maybe things will be okay there. So they take it to Gath, which if you remember from, from your uh, Bible stories, that's where Goliath's from. They take it to Gath. And what happens there? Verse 9. But after they had moved it, the Lord's hand was against that city, throwing it into great panic. He afflicted the people of the city, both young and old, with an outbreak of tumors. Ow! So what do they do? They say, get it out of here. So look at verse 10. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron, another city. But look what happens when they start to bring it into Ekron. And again, a little bit of humor. As the ark of God was entering Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, they've brought the ark of Israel around to kill us and our people. So they called together all the rulers of the Philistines. And what do they said? Send the ark of God of Israel away. Let it go back to its own place or it will kill us and our people. For death has filled the city with panic. God's hand was very heavy on it. Do you see what God does here? He displays his glory and his power and his might through wrath and through judgment. He acts in such a way amongst the Philistines that they are terrified by him. That they recognize his glory and his weight and his power. That they recognize his supremacy over Dagon. But do they fall bound before him? Do they worship him? Do they trust him? No, they say, get him out of here. Just get him out of here. Get the ark of the Lord away. And they do send the ark of the way. But as they send it, they also send it with a guilt offering. They send a guilt offering to try to turn away the wrath of God. And again, you see that at the start of chapter 6. When the ark of the Lord had been in Philistine territory for seven months, so they'd had it for seven months, the Philistine called for the priests and the diviners and said, what shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us how we should send it back to its place. How are we going to get rid of this thing? They answered, if you return the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it back to him without a gift. By all means, send a guilt offering to him. Then you will be healed, and you will know why his hand has not been lifted from me. The Philistines asked, what guilt offering should we send to him? 
They replied, five gold chimmers and five gold rats according to the number of the Philistine rulers because the same plague has struck both you and your rulers. Make models of the chimmers and of the rats that are destroying your country and give glory to Israel's God. Perhaps he will lift his hand from you and your gods and your land. Why do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh did when Israel's God dealt harshly with them? Did they not send the Israelites out so they could go on their way? You see what they say? Listen, if you're going to send the ark back and if you want the Lord's hand of wrath to be lifted from you, you need to make a guilt offering. You need to make an offering to him in the hope that this offering will appease him and turn away his wrath. That's a bit of a random offering they make. Imagine making a tumor out of gold. That'd be weird, wouldn't it? I mean, what, what would that look like? But that's what they do. They think, well, what will we make? We'll make five tumors for the five cities that God devastated. And, and it seems that God sent rats into the cities. Ugh. So they made five rats. And then they sent them away as kind of this offering in the hope that this might appease God's wrath. Now, what they offer is never really going to appease his wrath. But the idea is right, isn't it? The idea is right, in the Old Testament we see that God has atonement for sin. There is a sacrifice to be made, an offering to be made. A lamb without blemish is slaughtered on the day of atonement every year for the people's sin and the offering is accepted by God and and the people's sin is covered. And in the New Testament, this is what we see in Jesus. He is the one who offered himself. He gave himself as our guilt offering. You see, you and I, we're idolaters. You and I, we we disobey God. You and I, we don't trust God. You and I, we don't give God enough glory and enough weight in our thinking and in our lives. You and I are sinful people. You and I actually fall into the same sin as the Philistines. We don't worship him how we should. We don't give him the, the glory and the weight he deserves. We sin. And the amazing thing for us is that Jesus, the sinless one, died and bore the wrath of God so that his wrath would never come upon us. Jesus is our guilt offering. He is the sacrifice for us that has turned away the wrath that we deserve. Jesus is the offering for us. Anyway, let's go back to Wilder and Tyson Fury. As I said, it was a trilogy of fights. So you've had the first fight, split decision, it was a draw. You've had the second fight, Tyson Fury pummeled him, but the toil was thrown in, and then we get to the third fight. And in the third flight, just to put it beyond a shadow of a doubt, Tyson Fury knocks Deontay Wilder out in in the 11th round. He's out. It's a knockout blow. Tyson Fury has shown his supremacy in a way that no one can dispute and no one can doubt, not even Deontay Wilder. He shows his supremacy in its fullness in the third fight. And here, just to make sure that everyone knows that he's the supreme God, God sends the Ark of the Covenant away in an incredible way. Have a look with me at verse 7 of chapter 6. So how are they going to get rid of the ark? Well, the, the, the leaders say, Now then, get a new cart ready with two cows that have calved and have never been yoked. Now, my guess is that none of you are dairy farmers here. Okay, Something you need to know about milk cows is that they don't pull yokes. Okay, If you're a milk cow, 
you just produce milk. That's your job. So you're not used to pulling a yoke. You're not used to pulling a cart behind you, okay? So that's the first thing. You've never done this before if you're a milk cow. I just want you to pretend you're a milk cow for a minute, all right? Now, imagine there's two of you and you've both never pulled a cart. You're going to go in different directions, aren't you? You You're not going to know what you're doing. One of you might stop. One of you might walk. It's going to be pretty difficult because there's two of you and you have no idea what you're doing, okay? Now, you're a milk cow. You've never pulled a cart before, so you shouldn't really be able to do that anyway well. And the second thing is that you've just calved. You've just had some little calves. You've just had some little babies. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen it, but you see a cow that's just calved, all it wants to do is be with its calf. If you separate the two, there's tears, there's, there's this bleeding, it's, it's hard to even watch. I don't know if you've ever seen it on a YouTube video. There's this bleeding, there's this heartfelt bleeding. A mother will always go back to its calf after it's given birth. So the leaders say, I tell you what we'll do, just to make sure that this wasn't just a coincidence, just to make sure that this really was the God of Israel doing all this stuff, we're going to get two milking cows, we're going to put a cart on it, we're going to have their calves somewhere back there, we're going to put the Ark of the Covenant on the cart, and if they somehow travel back to Israel, over to Beth Shemesh, over the hill, then we will know for sure that this was God who didn't. And if they go back to their calves, well, it's just a coincidence. We see that in the text. Look at verse 8. Take the ark of the Lord and put it on the cart in a chest. Beside it, put the gold objects you're sending back to him as a guilt offering. Send it on its way. Now look at verse 9. But keep watching it. If it goes up to its own territory, towards Beth Shemesh, then the Lord has brought this great disaster on us. But look at the clause. But if it doesn't, you know, so if the the cows go back to their calves, then we will know that it was not his hand that struck us but that it happened to us by chance. Let's just make sure that this really was the God of Israel. Let's do this test with the calves back there, with the milking cows carrying the cart. Let's let's go and see. And if it happens, then it must be God. And if it doesn't, then it was just a chance. And what happens? Well, it's like the milking cows have GPS built in. It's like they've got built-in Google Maps because they go straight to Beth Shemesh. They go straight over the hill. They go straight back to the land of Israel. Verse 10, so they did this. They took two such cows and hitched them to the cart and penned up their calves. They placed the ark of the Lord on the cart and along with its chest containing the gold rats and the models of the tumors. Then the cows went straight up toward Beth Shemesh. Keeping on the road and lowing all the way, they did not turn to the right or to the left. The rulers of the Philistines followed them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were harvesting their wheat in the valley. And when they looked up and saw the ark, they rejoiced at the sight. It's beyond a shadow of a doubt now. The God of Israel is supreme. It has been him who has dealt with them in the way they did. And what's the Philistines' response? Do they buy and worship? Do they turn to him? Do they trust him? Do they find out more about him? Do they glorify him? Nope. They just say, well, glad that's all over. There's something really sad about that, isn't there? 
And there's something really true to life about it as well. I really thought that COVID and the whole pandemic thing would be a wake-up call for many people. I remember at the start of it and, and, the, and the deaths on the TV and, and the amount of death toll. And I remember at the start, people saying, oh, I'm, I'm praying and, 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 and oh God, I hope he helps us. And, and I remember there was so much chatter even amongst non-Christian people. And then it ended and everyone went, well, I'm glad that's over now, back to normal life. And it's the same in our lives at times, isn't it? Maybe the Lord disciplines us. Or the Lord brings us into situations that, that really should cause us to, to turn to him or to trust him. Maybe he shows us his glory. He reminds us of his goodness and his supremacy and that he's to be worshipped and followed. Maybe there's things that remind us of that. And in the moment we think, I really must trust the Lord. I really must follow him. I really must worship him. And then those things pass and we kind of just go back. Let that not be us. Let that not be us. Let's remember that our God really is supreme. Let's remember that he is the ruler of the universe. Let's remember that there is no God like him. Let's remember that he is glorious and witty and majestic and holy. Let's remember that he deserves our affection and our attention. Let's remember that he deserves our allegiance. There is one God and through Jesus, we know him. So let's trust him and let's follow him. Let's now pray to him. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. And we thank you that through this part of the Bible, you remind us that you are the supreme God, the powerful God, the holy God, the righteous God. Lord, tonight we want to confess that at times we, we place things above you in our lives and in our hearts. At times we put our trust in things instead of in you. And Lord, tonight we repent and we're sorry of that. Lord, we also confess tonight that at times we tend to think of the gods of other religions as being your equal. Lord, we repent of that tonight. And we declare that we know that you are the sovereign, holy, living God, the one who raised Jesus from the dead. Help us, Lord, to respect and love those of other faiths. But help us not, Lord, to bring you down to the size of the gods that they worship. Lord, we thank you tonight for Jesus, the one who was the atoning sacrifice for our sin, the one who was the guilt offering, the one who bore your wrath, that we might never bear it, even though we deserve it. Help us tonight to delight in Christ and to trust in him. And Father, I pray for each of us tonight, if you've been trying to get our attention, if we've been going through difficulty at your hand in the hope that we would turn to you and lean on you and trust in you, but we're refusing, would you help us instead to bow the knee this evening and to give you our praise and to give you our worship, to give you our trust and to give you our allegiance. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.